Mentor-protege arrangements between large and small contractors have proven effective in helping primes and the government itself reach their annual small business goals. The yearly Nunn-Perry Awards honor Defense Department mentor-protege setups that have been notably effective. One of this year's three awards went to the Naval Supply Systems Command. And here in studio with the details, NAVSUP's Director of Small Business, Chris Espenshade. Mr. Espenshade, good to have you in. Good to be on. Thank you. Let's begin with mentor-protege arrangements. What are they precisely and how do they work, at least at NAVSUP? Yeah, so so mentor-protege, uh, there's really two programs that are available to DOD. You have both uh, DOD's mentor-protege program and then you have SBA's mentor-protege program. And so we primarily utilize DOD's mentor-protege program in which you have, of course, a mentor who is uh, an eligible large traditional prime contractor of uh, at least $100 million, uh, have an active subcontracting plan in place, and are currently doing work with DOD. And what they do is they pair with, a, of course, a protege. Traditionally, what it's been in the past is a small business, small disadvantaged business. That's half of the NAICS code. Now, that's changed in recent NDA language that no longer do they have to be half of their size standard of their primary NAICS code. And so, again, it's a, it's a two-year program now. It goes flows between three- and two-year program. But these agreements are really intended to develop small businesses into being viable support contractors for Department of Defense. And so whether that's to build new capability or to really build capacity, and that, that's some of the, the benefits we've seen in the recent years. There's a third element to these programs, the historically black colleges and universities. How do they fit into the equation here? So HBCUs, and there's a requirement within DOD's mentor project program in that at least 5% of the reimbursable expenditures on the agreement through the life cycle is required to be utilized, utilizing HBCUs, small business development centers, and then our uh, procurement technical assistance centers, we call them PTACs. And so uh, this specific award, uh, the Nunn-Perry Award for uh, CACI and uh, CDIT, which is a small business out of Slidell, Louisiana, one of the, the major milestones for them is they far surpassed the, the standard 5%, actually utilizing 24% of the expenditures. And so their involvement within these agreements is to really provide the mentor some services in building up that protege. And so in this case, Morgan State University, which is CACI's uh, go-to HBCU in supporting mentor protege, they help implement the HUBZone certification, the ISO 9001, and then CMMC uh, Dev 3, Level 3, in supporting the protege. And so uh, it's a tremendous opportunity for HBCUs, but also we get a lot of the unique capability and support that they provide. And this small company that is the protege, CDIT, from Slidell, Louisiana, what do they do? What does the company do? So it's IT software development, really customizable types of solutions. They have some past performance within Department of Defense. But really, where this agreement improved on CDET was uh, building both physical capacity, but then also employees. So, you know, they saw a growth of throughout the, the three years, 25 to 72 employees. Their actual physical footprint size has grown. And so they've supported an additional uh, six new Navy federal customers in addition to what they were doing before. Most of their work previous to this agreement was really on the subcontracted arrangement with CACI and a few other traditional partners, but they have a lot of experience in the commercial sector, uh, working with the medical and, and the dental fields with the aggregation of a lot of their accounting systems as well as their software development and front-end portals. And what 
did Naval Supply Systems Command receive from CACI ultimately that this small company had contributed to? So in, I guess, even a bigger picture, what Department of Defense receives and then we're a recipient of that is that, um, you know, really this agreement has shown over a 2,000 percent return on investment. So our investment that we've provided through this reimbursable agreement, 2,000 percent of that has gone back in the, the protege's involvement within DOD contracts. So they're now a prime contractor to a number of contracts. And where that benefits us at NAVSUP is we have a capable mission partner that can help. Primarily, one of one of our big lines of efforts is, is NAVSUP Business Systems Center. Well, that does the sustainment of logistics, IT software. And so uh, we now have a mission-capable small business that we know has been through this agreement, has built up capability, and is prepared to take on some of that work that we need in addition to our organic capabilities. So they develop applications and enhancements and updates to your core system for operating logistics. Yeah, absolutely. Got absolutely. it. And so the mentor Protege program, in addition to growing up that capability, it's also a great opportunity to tweak little things that we think is unique to Navy and us, NAVSUP, to say, hey, we'd really like for you to have this capability because we see that as a weakness within our current industrial base. And so through this agreement, we've built that capability, we've built that capacity, and you know, it's really beneficial to us to have that ready and available mission partner. We're speaking with Chris Espenshade. He's Director of Small Business at the Naval Supply Systems Command. And tell us about the Nunn Perry Awards and what they cited in one of three awards this year in DOD for Mentor Protégé went to NAVSUP. Yeah, absolutely. So Nunn Perry, again, it's a yearly award in which DOD recognizes the top outstanding Mentor Protégé agreements across DOD. We were fortunate enough to be selected as one of three, the only Navy Mentor Protégé award that was selected this year. And I really feel part of the reason why this was so beneficial and we were so successful in that is that, one, we had outstanding support from CACI as the mentor, and then the selection of the protege, which is really important. Um, and again, this is this is a determination that's made by the mentor only. We can't identify who we think they need to uh, partner and, and mentor. And so they did an outstanding job of selecting a protege that was committed to the program. You know, I think a lot of folks are really interested in the program right now, and it's a really involved program that has to have a lot of hands-on. And so Scott Galloway and Bill Henley down at uh, CDIT were constantly engaged with myself and Department of Navy Office of Small Business Programs to say, hey, this is what we're doing throughout the agreement. This is our task deliverables, but what else can we do to benefit you guys and then also benefit what, what meets the merit of the intention of the program? And I think that's why we were recognized. The other thing is, you know, off the charts, return on investment, both from, from DOD, but I think involvement, again, with uh, Morgan State University, the HBCU utilization, and then just the success that they've had as a prime contractor now. And what else are you doing, by the way, to maintain NAVSUP's very high level? I think you exceed the minimum requirement federally for small business utilization every year. You've got a lot of things cooking to yeah. keep cultivating small business. What are some of the other, besides mentor-protege, which sounds like kind of a heavy lift to get those things going and to prove their efficacy? Yeah, yeah. mentor-protege, it's a 
it's a longer process than than you'd like, but it, that's intentional because in order to be successful and be you know to the standard of non-parity, and that's what we hope for for every agreement that we put in place. It's about a year process of vetting, communicating with the mentor to say this works for us, this doesn't, uh, and then it's a collective building of what we think is intentional. So yeah, we we've we've been fortunate in the last couple of years we've had an outstanding small business uh, execution. We won uh, Department of Navy Secretary Cup in 2021 for top small business office office within Navy. Uh, and part of that, and again, is the goaling, but um, we're very intentional in that all of our efforts align to command priorities and Navy priorities. One of the top priorities for NAVSUP, top priority is uh, Naval uh, Systems Sustainment, NSS Supply. And so this was a uh, initiative that was kicked off by Admiral Lesher to see about how do we effectuate efficiency improvement and improve readiness within supply sustainment. And so as part of that, we're leveraging Mentor Protege. We have a we have a really exciting agreement right now in place between Raytheon Missiles and Defense and a small business in Tampa, Florida, Tampa Brass and Aluminum, which is a small business foundry machine shop. And so what we've done is we've been intentional to say we have some challenges with obsolescence. How do we use Mentor Protege to build up capability and capacity for the small business to take over support when we have legacy equipment where traditional vendors are, are looking to maybe exit the marketplace? So as part of that, it's the first agreement. and It's a really unique arrangement in that the protege at the end of this three-year agreement, they will take over prime level support for a number of, of components that are traditionally supported by Raytheon. So we see this as a, a really a best in class. We're really excited about some of the early early advancements and improvements that we've seen through the first year of the agreement. And it's kind of interesting to see this small growth, at least in this niche area of manufacturing in the United States, bending metal, pouring yep. it, machining it, whatever it is they do in metal working to yeah. get those parts physical parts to the navy. Yeah, absolutely. It uh, you know the foundries that's a that's a business line that has been for the most part it, it's been exported overseas. So what we've been trying to do is be intentional about how do we facilitate and support that domestic capability. And so that's one of the top priorities for Department of Navy uh, Office of Small Business Mentor Proje guidance is, hey, we're looking at manufacturing, research and development, and then knowledge-based services, which we've seen a growth in small businesses over the year. But what we're really focused on in Naval Supply Systems Command is building up manufacturing capability to take on support and sustain a lot of these legacy platforms that, that are still fielded today. Chris Espenshade is Director of Small Business at the Naval Supply Systems Command. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career 
at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took... Um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. 
But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. 
I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in in federal service? And she said, "Uh, isn't that for old people? (laughs) I said, "Uh, (laughs) um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.